All right, and three, two, one. Hey, everybody, this is Josh from the Status Dramaticus podcast. This is episode five with a focus on mental health. So we have a uh, guest today. I'll be introducing her shortly. Uh, just a couple of things. I just want to thank everybody for the feedback I got for the pre-hospital blood draw video that I did. I was experimenting with some new software where I could draw um, in real time, and I got some positive feedback for that. So I'll be working on some more projects as we uh, continue. Um, also, if you want to be a guest or you have a topic that you would like to present, you can email me at statusdramaticusrnems at gmail.com. All right. So with that maintenance stuff out of the way, we have a guest. Her name is Gina. She is a mental health therapist. Did I get that right, Gina? Yes. <laughs> All right. So as a mental health therapist, can you... Uh, talk a little bit about what your what your job is what does it entail sure so I guess it depends on which setting you're in okay um, so I personally work in three different settings okay um, that sounds so, busy yes so for example when I'm in the emergency room I'm mostly focusing on assessment assessing for safety um, and treatment options and I also work in private practice, so I'm doing more long-term therapy and, and helping people kind of process different life events and figure out solution-focused treatment. So okay. it kind of depends on, you know, which, which setting I'm in. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, so as an ER nurse, uh, we interact, and I've actually interacted with you a couple times, but yes. it's very limited in that kind of setting because things get a little bit crazy. But... Um, so can we just talk a little bit more about the role in the emergency room? So you said assess for safety. What does, what does that entail? So in the emergency room, my title is behavioral health consultant. So what I'm doing okay. essentially is someone comes into the emergency room, sometimes via EP, emergency petition, sometimes they're there for something medical, and then um, they mention that you know they're feeling unsafe or they're feeling suicidal. And when that happens, the attending will order a psych consult. So then I have to come in, and I'm actually doing a full psychosocial history. So I'm not just going in and saying, you know, do you feel like you want to kill yourself? I'm getting kind of a full picture of their history, family history, any substance use. I'm also looking at presenting symptoms and um, safety in terms of, you know, if they leave the emergency room, are they going to cause harm to themselves or others? Okay. So when someone is determined to be unsafe, then what happens? So when we are assessing suicidality, there's a couple things that we look for. It's not just, do you want to kill yourself, right? So right. I mean, you might have somebody who's experiencing some passive suicidal thoughts or a passive death wish, which would look like, you know, um, if I went to sleep tonight and didn't wake up, that would be okay. Or, you know, I can't take the pain anymore, I'd rather just be dead. Not that that's, not to minimize that, but that's different than somebody saying, I feel like I'm gonna kill myself, I right. have a gun at home, and I'm gonna use that gun to kill myself. That's like opposed to having like a plan right. to follow through on that. And even further than that, you have to look at the lethality of a plan. So, you know, somebody, if they say I'm gonna um, jump off of a bridge but there's no bridges in the vicinity you know you have to kind of look okay. at like, what's the likelihood that they're going to carry out this plan or they have access to carry out this plan wow that's like so. that's a lot of thought in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's a, a couple things i think there's like five total things that we look for we have to kind oh, of okay. go down the list 
Is that, so what are those five things? <laughs> you know, off the um, top of your head? <laughs> so, you know, plan, intense, lethality. You want to look for reasons for living, right? So what motive, What are some motivating factors? So believe it or not, like pets are a huge motiv- motivating factor. People are less likely, you know, to kill themselves if they have dogs at home that they know are going to be left alone and not have somebody oh. to take care of them. So there's a lot of protective factors that we also look for. Wow, I had no idea. Is that like a personal responsibility type of thing? I mean, yeah, you'd be surprised. I've had a lot of people say to me, I would never, I wouldn't do that to my cat or... You know, wow. my dog would nobody would be there to take care of my dog. So it's just an example of a protective factor. Another reason to adopt a dog. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say like religion's a huge, huge protective factor. A lot of people, even if they do really feel like they want to kill themselves because of their beliefs, they won't. Okay. So that's a pretty strong draw, but that's yes. not saying that they don't need some help right. otherwise, though, because right. there's other things that can be treated. Right. Okay. No, that's that's great. Um, so one of the things that I notice in the ED, and I think this is a, just like a nationwide problem, is the like so-called boarding in the mm-hmm. ED. Like there's this long period of time that these people are waiting for placement in a facility. Mm-hmm. So could you kind of like shine some light on the, um, the ability to find the resources and the ability to be able to send someone to a facility? Sure. So I think... Are we allowed to say where we are right now? <laughs> or I mean, can we talk about where I, where I work full time? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. So I work full time at a crisis center, which is okay. kind of a new type of program, which I really hope they expand and more of these places pop up because oftentimes you have somebody in the emergency room who may not necessarily need higher level of care, like an inpatient unit, but they need something more than just outpatient. So we right. have a lower level of care which would be like a residential bed, which is kind of this new program at this crisis center that they're trying out. So that would be a great option. It would divert people from the emergency room. Um, it would you know, give people other options that are less restrictive, which is always the goal. You want to protect people's rights whenever possible and not you know, take, that, take their rights away from them, put them on a unit where they can't have their phone, they can't have a lot of their belongings. Right. I feel like a lot in, this, uh, in those situations, being in the ED, uh, when you take all that stuff away, mm-hmm. it just seems to increase the anxiety. And if yes. there is an issue, it's it's like ultimately going to result in an outburst of some mm-hmm. sort. So, I mean, an, another program that kind of lets you keep your, your freedom sounds like a good idea. Absolutely. I mean, you'd be surprised how motivating phones and cigarettes are to people. People like, want treatment, and then when they hear they can't have those things, it's, you know. It just stirs up anxiety yeah, even further. Wow, oh, that's great. So how long have you been at the crisis center? I have been at the crisis center since August of last year, and it opened in June. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Okay. And this seems like a, an interesting approach. Are there a lot of crisis centers, like, in the U.S.? I think... There's only, with the residential program, it's my understanding there's really only one other program like this in Maryland, which is kind of an innovative program. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that this will be something, we're kind of, I guess, like a pilot program, and I'm hoping that new programs will open across the country and so that that will be a new option for people. And that people wouldn't even have to go to the emergency room because the assessments that I do in the ED, I can also do at the crisis center. So that person doesn't have to go to the emergency room at all. 
Okay. So sometimes they do, but right. not always. Well, let's talk about that. So what what is appropriate for the crisis center and what's appropriate for the ED? Right. So we talk about that passive SI, people who are dealing with a lot of stressors. Coronavirus has shown a wow. lot a lot of that, a lot of examples of people who are really feeling stressed, but they don't need to be locked on a unit, but they need immediate help. Mm-hmm. So they don't need to be on a unit. They're not an imminent risk to themselves or others, but they need some support right away. So to have an option where they can go somewhere for three to five days, a unit that's not locked, it's voluntary, they get to keep their belongings, but they're seeing a doctor, so they're starting on some medications, they're participating in intensive group therapy. You know, that's that's a huge, a huge um, option for them aside from the ER, because it's almost like an ex- such an extreme option or nothing at all. I mean, there all are right. IOPs and things like that, intensive outpatient programs, but when someone's presenting in the moment they need help, it's not helpful to say, well, you know, three days from now you can start this program right. and they need something right then and there, but it's scary to be in the hospital. Or we're going to try to get you in sometime next week, but right. you need help right now. Right. No, that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. Um, so talk about passive SI for some of our listeners that might not be familiar with what passive SI sure. is. Sure. So when you're experiencing passive suicidal thoughts, which I, I would guess most people have experienced them at some point or another, um, there's no plan to hurt yourself. There's no actual intent to hurt yourself. You're just starting to have these thoughts of you're feeling so terrible, things are so stressful and overwhelming that you would just be okay if things ended. So you're not at a point where you're gonna act on these thoughts or where you've even started to formulate how you would hurt yourself. You're just, that's how low you are. So it's when they actually have a plan, it crosses over from passive to, what's the word, active? Yeah, and I think even with active SI, even if we have someone who comes in and they say, I'm feeling really suicidal and you know, I, I would overdose on medication, the next thing that we would want to do is can they contract for safety so you know our next step is i i need some collateral i need to talk to a family member someone they live with Mm -hmm. in a lot of situations they refuse and to me that's a sign of they can't leave because they're not letting me talk to people close to them to help keep them safe so i can't ensure that they're going to be safe if they leave a lot of times in that situation if i'm able to call a family or whoever whomever they live with talk to them come up with a plan so people close to them know what they're thinking you know, we can come up with a solid safety plan and send them home, but that's not always the case. There's a, there's a lot of factors that play into it. Right. Yeah. It sounds like it can get very complicated. It's not just like purely medical where you can say, oh, I have this, so it must be this. It just seems like it's very individualized more so than yes. these other med- medical situations. So um, part of the podcast, too, is that we gear information towards EMS as well. Is there something uh, from a mental health standpoint that EMS would EMS would benefit from knowing, or uh, a resource that they could call upon if they are in a situation with a uh, mental health crisis? So I'm actually not sure. Do you guys get any type of training? I know that some police officers have. I think it's called CIT training, some type of training in mental health, which is how to like interact with people in crisis. The the extent and. This is from going to UMBC. I think you're an alumni of UMBC. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I did the paramedic program there. And one of the classes that we had was uh, CISM, 
I don't know your, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. It's no. critical incident stress management. Okay. But I don't think that's a typical part of programs. And the extent in paramedic school is we, we'll get a uh, behavioral health, mental health uh, unit in one of our classes. But I don't, mm. I've never really been a part of something more extensive okay. than that. Um, what about a mobile crisis? Is this something that EMS could use? Yeah, I actually worked for Mobile Crisis last year for a few months. So I I actually did not encounter EMS at all on any of my calls, but I would absolutely utilize them, especially in Harford County. There's some great clinicians that work with Mobile Crisis, and, you know, it's an opportunity for them to go straight to the client, to the person in need, and not have to, because, you know, a lot of people aren't going to seek help. Right. If you can come to where they are, they're more likely to engage. But I would absolutely use Mobile Crisis as a resource. I see. And what? how does Mobile Crisis work? So Mobile Crisis will respond if – so they changed their rules or um, guidelines last year. So what was happening before is we were having people call and say, you know, my adult son or my husband is in crisis. We weren't getting consent from the person in crisis. So mm-hmm. we were risking that that person – was going to become irate or agitated when we show up. So now they have to agree. They have to get on the phone and agree, yes, I want you to come talk to me. Unless it's a child, and then, you know, that's handled differently. But basically, you know, we would go out there. We would do a similar similar assessment, probably not as in-depth as I would do in the ED, but an assessment of stressors, um, any, like, negative coping strategies they've been using, and try to teach them some positive coping strategies. So when you're doing crisis work, mobile crisis, ED, you're doing more solution focus, kind of quick, what's the problem, what are the symptoms, you know, what can I teach you in this moment to kind of help you, Okay. versus long-term therapy, where you're really kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty and, you know, more in-depth. So mobile crisis can go out there and connect them to resources. So if it's somebody who's not engaged in therapy, is in crisis, we can help them schedule something so they can have an ongoing therapist. We can show them what resources are in the community. Would they also make that determination if they go to the ED or something like a crisis center or recommend that? So depending, they have some licensed clinicians and some who are not. So depending on the clinician who responds, they could EP. I've been on calls before where we've EP'd. Mm -hmm. Um, But they can call the police and let the police take it from there if they feel they, they need to go to the emergency room. The police involvement with mobile crisis, are they usually involved? Not all the time. I know on night shift, they typically only have one counselor working. So anytime from 11 to 7 a.m., a police has to respond because every other shift there's two. So night shift, there's just one. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I worked, I rarely encountered police, maybe a couple of times. I know in Baltimore County, it's, it is police and clinicians. Okay, so that's just a, like a jurisdictional yes. type of thing yes. for changes and differences. Okay, um, so back to a little bit to the crisis center. Uh, is, Har- is Harford County Crisis Center only to um, residents of Harford County? No, anybody, anybody. I mean, we've had people from Baltimore City, a lot, a lot of people from Baltimore County, Cecil County, so anybody. Right, so they'd, they'd get referred from pretty far out, but as long as it's in Maryland. It, or does that matter I think, either? I think we've had some people from Pennsylvania. I think it's just word of mouth and people becoming familiar with us. Right. You know? Yeah, and it's, I guess it's its first year. Yes. I guess uh, there's more 
for advertisement, I guess. And I think at one point we did get the breakdown of how many people we had seen and from which county, and obviously majority came from Harford County, but there were other counties, you know, who, who had visited. So. That's great. So yeah. they can just show up. Yes. Yeah, and get resources if they need it. All right. Well, that's good. That's really yeah. great. Um, so what, what could emergency room nurses do to make your job easier or at least make the, the time that the patient is in the ER easier or some kind of, I guess easier is not the best word, but something better for long-term sure. or short-term? So I think, you know, there's a couple things I want to mention here. I know that, you know, a lot of nurses, I mean, I guess you encounter mental health really no matter what where you work. Right. It's something that you're going to encounter. But most nurses, you know, that's not what, <laughs> what they went to school for. That's not right. their focus. So, you know, there are a couple things that I think are important to mention. So something that I'm trained as a therapist to keep in mind is, similar to universal precautions, right? So as a nurse, you would treat any pa any bodily fluid that you came in contact with, no matter who the patient was, the same way, just assuming that anybody could be infected with whatever, right? So you're gonna mm -hmm. handle everything the same. So we, from a trauma-informed approach, we use that same mindset of the saying is, instead of looking at somebody and saying, what's wrong with you? It's what, what has happened to you. And so for me, keeping that in mind really helps create some empathy. Mm. I know I've been working in this field for 10 years, so oh, I wow. know how difficult mental health patients can be firsthand. I know. Right. But I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, this is the result of years and years of probably trauma, abuse, neglect, you know, early life childhood experiences that were not nurturing and just kind of keeping in mind that this person's behavior is the result of that. And so instead of looking at them like, what's wrong with you? It's like, what has happened to you? And to me, that's the beginning of really being able to develop some empathy for people. Um, so, you know, we treat every person we come in contact with as someone who probably was traumatized and has had that experience. And I think validation is really important at minimum if you can just validate someone's experience i think it means a lot so if you have an irate patient in the emergency room you know if they've been combative or they've been nasty you know maybe when they calm down to say something like you know i can imagine how difficult this must be for you or this mm -hmm. must be really frustrating this must be really scary um just some simple validation can be really can make can make the difference for their experience and then the biggest piece, one that I'm still working on, and it's hard, is to not take things personally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it is it hard. Is, it but is But you hard. have to remember that, you know, whatever they're saying to you, however they're acting, is really not about you at all. Right. They don't. So. E and realistically, they don't even know you. Exactly. Like, they're yes. just coming there. I think uh, one of the hard things in the ED is, like, you just have to shift gears so fast. And... With the, with the medical stuff, I think people are even sometimes more comfortable with the, the medical problems mm -hmm. because that's, that's really what the education was focused on. Yes. I mean, even from an EMS standpoint, uh, working as a paramedic and being an emergency nurse, it's very limited information or training on mental health issues. And I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's like uh, mental health stuff and pediatrics because yes. pediatrics scare everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but what are what are some things that you know would help the education with 
EMS and I know you said something about validation mm -hmm. and what about as far as what kind of history to take for an EMS provider? What would be useful out in the field? Well, I'm not 100% sure what their assessments look like. I mean, in terms of history, when, so if we're talking about suicidality, one of the biggest things, I guess two of the biggest things that you want to know is there a family history? Has anyone in your family, immediate family completed suicide? And then you want to know, have they had any prior attempts? Those are huge markers for the likelihood that they're going to um, successfully kill themselves. So assessment-wise, I think that would be really important. Mm -hmm. It's hard because even within psych, there's so many variations. Like a lot of my backgrounds with children in mental health. Oh, wow. That's so, tough. Yes. It's <laughs> definitely my, my favorite population to work with. That's great. Not, ad not adolescents, like 3 to 12, like the littles, the little okay. buddies. But even, you know, my colleagues who work with adults, it's so different. Like they're like, I wouldn't even know what to say to a 5-year-old in therapy. So there's so many variations even within mental health. I have no idea what to say to a five-year-old. Uh, luckily, I don't. I haven't had many mental health patients that were that young. You encounter it every once in a while in private ambulance when you do interfacility transports. When we right. go out to uh, other facilities that have pediatric capabilities for mental health. But I mean, what the, might just go down a different road here? But uh, what's that like working with kids? I can tell you, the youngest child I ever saw was an 18-month-old at my internship. Wow. which was wild, but I, I love working with children. That's definitely my favorite population. It's a lot of play therapy. You'd be really surprised what kids will say when they're playing, when they're painting, when they're drawing. So it's, it's a crazy, so one of the things that, you know, burns out a lot of providers is when they have to deal with pediatrics from a medical standpoint, mm -hmm. but luckily that doesn't happen a ton in your basic ER, but Dealing with, I don't, I don't, I can't think of any training I've had with a pediatric mental health patient. Um, what, what should you do in that type of crises or situation? I know it's individualized, but maybe there's some advice. Sure. So I actually worked children's inpatient for eight years, so that's definitely my forte. But yeah. I think it's, you'd be surprised how well distraction works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the kids, it's, it's behavioral, right? So, you know, they're having difficulty with anger, with frustration tolerance and acting out. You'd find if a kid is angry and you offer them a toy or something, how quickly they forget why they're upset. So distraction is definitely a tool yeah. that I would use a lot to kind of yeah, we used to carry stuffed animals and yeah. stuff on the unit, so those <laughs> might come in handy for that. But yes. you should just give them out when people are having a tough time. But that's a tough time, yes. too. And I will say, and I think this is true for any patient in the situation, offering choices as much as possible, especially when you're in the emergency room or when you're an inpatient, you're in a restrictive environment where so much of your control is gone. You don't have the choice of being able to use your phone or eat when you want, just offering choices whenever possible makes a huge difference, I think. Right. Yeah. Wow. So if, if children are mostly like behavioral health, I mean, um, like behavioral problems, mm -hmm. what, when does that become, when does that separate from needs to needs intervention versus doesn't need intervention? Cause it just seems like that, that line's really blurry to me. 
Yeah, and that's definitely the area I'm most passionate about, but I will say research has shown that inpatient admissions for children tends to be more harmful than helpful, Mm -hmm. which makes me feel sad, you know, because I worked in that environment for so long, and I can definitely see a lot of examples of children who are there who, I mean, we've had three-year-olds on an inpatient unit where I'm like, I probably didn't need to be there. But, I mean, that's the other thing is it really depends on who – who evaluates them. I mean, I've sent clients from my private practice to the ER thinking for sure they're going to be admitted because they're so unsafe and endorsing SI, and then I get a call that they were sent home, so it really depends. Um, but, I mean, you kid, the thing is kids are so impulsive Yeah. that even if a kid doesn't, like, doesn't actually want to kill himself, he may impulsively run into the street or do something where he's going to hurt himself, even if... Mm-hmm. That's, it's just an attention-seeking behavior or a reaction. So, I mean, kids are pretty impulsive, and I think that's the danger with kids is, is just that, that the, impulsivity. Right. Yeah, well that, that can be challenging. This is, this is a topic I haven't even thought about, <laughs> so I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad I, I yeah. had no idea about the kid thing with you. Right, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you could be a really great resource. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love my little buddies. Yeah. So um, do you work? with kids now? I do. Actually, if you go on the website of my private practice, it oh, says nice. I am the resident expert with the little kiddos. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so private practice too. When do you have time to do anything else? I don't have much time <laughs> for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that's good. You're doing really good work. It Thank sounds like you. you're very passionate about the, the kid thing. That's yes. awesome. I'm going to have to pick your brain about stuff at some point. Definitely. <laughs> um, so... What what do you do in your private practice? How is that separated from crisis center work um, and ED work? So these are kids, and I think I have all um, children, adolescents, I see on a weekly basis. So they're learning long-term skills to manage anxiety, depression, to in- increase focus and concentration with children who have ADHD, um, kids who have started self-injurious behaviors, cutting, helping them find alternative coping mechanisms. So, you know, some of the kids I've been seeing since, I mean, close to a year. So I keep my caseload for a while. I usually see um, kids for months at a time. Um, But really, so they're more stable, right? So, you know, they're able to come in once a week, learn skills, practice in between session. There's really no acute safety concerns with them. And I think for me, one of the reasons I want to stay in private practice is because I want to keep my clinical skills strong and I'm not using those types of skills in the ED or in the crisis center. So for me, it's important, especially as a newer clinician, okay. to the, continue doing that. These skills that you teach kids, the skill itself, is it the same as you would teach an adult, just um, taught differently, or are these a completely different set of skills? I would say most of them are the same, and I just teach them differently. So, for example, you know, we teach a lot of mindfulness, which is pooling from DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. So, you know, I'll teach adults, you know, the importance of keeping your focus in the present. And when I teach as a kid, I say, pretend a dog is on a leash. You don't want the dog pulling you forward, like your thoughts in the future, but you don't want a lazy dog behind you that you have to keep yanking in the past. You want the thoughts right beside you in the present. So I use, like... An analogy like that with the kids, but I'm probably not going to use that with and, the adults. And say that therapy word again. What, was, what did you say? Oh, I'm sorry. Dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical behavioral, behavioral therapy. therapy. Yes. Okay. Could you explain that? 
Sure. So DBT it has become very popular within the past 10 years or so. So it was actually created in the 80s by a woman named Marsha Linehan. Linehan. Wow, you were very prepared um, for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have a really good memory. So. But it, so it was initially, she had borderline personality disorder, and it was created for people who had borderline. In 2012, Shepard Pratt, which is where I worked for a long time, their entire health system switched and that's what their treatment modality was, hospital-wide, every program. Um, I know University of Maryland also uses DBT, so a lot, of, a lot of organizations are using DBT because the goal is it, they're skills that are very helpful for when you're in a crisis. So my thought is I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy in private practice, CBT. Mm-hmm. When you're in crisis... And, you know, I mean, if you're having a panic attack, for example, it's going to be really hard to restructure your negative thoughts mm-hmm. when you're having a panic attack. Because you're just racing right. uncontrollably. So it's going to be harder to access those cognitive skills in the middle of a crisis. So DBT, those skills are better when you're kind of in crisis mode. And then when you kind of are closer to your baseline, you can access the cognitive work. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yes. No, I, l- I learned something new today. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, it's it's crazy because, you know, I was teaching DBT to like five-year-olds and you got to get creative and you'd be surprised how much they retained. <laughs> but that being said, with those, with those skills, like, wouldn't these be skills that everyone should learn? I think so. I mean, personally, I think anybody could be diagnosed with a some type of mental disorder. I mean, if you, I mean, right. everyone has anxiety at some point. Everyone, yeah, you know, feels depression. depressed sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, at some point in everyone's life, I think that they would benefit from learning and using some of these skills. This uh, it just makes me think about like what's going on now. So there's mm-hmm. social isolation, and a lot of people are having a lot of trouble with it. Um, yes. Do you see like an increase in clientele just because of this event? I have seen, I know we have a waiting list at my practice. Oh, wow. And we, I think we did prior to this, but people, I mean, it's been really, really difficult for people. Yeah. Especially, I've noticed parents at home with all their kids now having to teach and be a parent and not getting a break. I mean, it's been really, I've seen a lot. Yeah, you're always turned on, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, do you think it's mostly like the isolative component, like they're not interacting with? other people, peers, that type of thing? So I've seen or heard about some people really feeling stir crazy is what people keep saying Mm -hmm. and needing to get out of their house. But then I've, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, people who are spending way too much time with their family and they're just like, I can't, I mean, I can't handle this anymore. So. And these aren't people with um, like diagnosed anxiety or depression. This could be pretty much anybody. Anybody, yes. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of, I mean, even grief. I saw a post yesterday from a, an old classmate who was supposed to get married yesterday and didn't get married and a oh, lot of people yeah. I mean that's a tough yeah one. a lot of people are grieving not celebrating things and milestones or I mean it's been hard for people right yes yesterday it's made me think of this is uh, there's like a youtuber I watch like I follow on his channel and he's all about like early retirement that type of thing about money issues but he his last video was like so depressing mm. i think he like chugged a beer on it oh, and it was goodness. like so out of like ordinary for his behavior but it's affecting people in such extraordinary ways and i guess in that kind of situation you don't know his mental health background to begin with right. but i mean 
it's just a, a testament that maybe these skills could be applied. Is there like a resources like uh, that people can go and check out that like anybody could find out? So off the top of my head, yeah. I can't give you like the website. I was just or, testing but, you. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, you know, there are a couple things that I have been working on with clients in all of my jobs with the coronavirus. The one thing I saw something online, somebody was complaining about being stuck at home with their kids and made kind of a snarky comment like, how are my childless friends doing? And I think we have to be really Oof. careful about comparing people's experiences. So for me, I live alone. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, you know, sometimes you get lonely being home by yourself in the quarantine. I think for a lot of people, that's a, a separate different struggle than people who are stuck at home with family members that are getting on their nerves. And I've been extremely lucky that I'm still able to work all of my three jobs. I've been seeing my clients in my living room through telepsych. So I haven't felt the financial strain of the quarantine, but mm -hmm. I've had to risk being exposed and I'm immunosuppressed. So that's been scary for me. Wow, yeah. Um, so I think it's just really important not to compare, not to, you know, say people shouldn't be complaining because they're still working or don't complain that you, you know, didn't get to have your bridal shower and people are dying. I think we just have to be compassionate with one another and allow people to feel upset. I mean, I think it's valid what people are feeling and just to be, and to also, in a, as a way to manage your anxiety, to recognize what you can and can't control. There's only so much that you can do, right, to protect yourself from getting sick. Right. So focus on that, but kind of surrender the things that you can control because worrying about them is not going to change that. You know? Just forgive yourself for not being able to do all these right. things that you want to do because no one's really getting to do the right. things that they right. want to do right now. And that's a good point. Uh, I think about um, some of the, the nurses I work with and some of the EMS providers in the area. And you see, like, even they're ang anxious mm -hmm. when they're not at work. But um, it sounds like, it, at least if you're working, there's still some kind of social contact, which might right. help. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, so I think it's just different experiences. So people at home aren't, probably aren't as worried as getting sick because they've been at home. But they're probably going crazy in their houses and don't have income. So right. it's just, you know, kind of different challenges that people are facing, you know. Do you ever think about like, so this is a pretty extreme situation, but um, like the nurses and EMS or doctors, anyone in the healthcare field, like the level of anxiety. I mean, we're, we've been hearing in the news, like healthcare providers, suicide and mm -hmm. all this kind of thing. Um, what are your thoughts on how we address our own? You know, we're all healthcare providers. We're all in this together. Um, how do we address these people seeing these things over and over again? Whereas like if it were a client of yours and they were exposed to these things, mm -hmm. it'd be considered trauma, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I will say my sister is an ER nurse and she has been pulled to the ICU for the past few weeks for the first time in years. And she's really been struggling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think of her when you say that, cause I know it's been hard for her and she's not someone who typically struggles with something like that. And it's I a think different role. It is. And yeah. I mean, nurses like my sister are kind of being thrown into it. And she's like, God, I hope I know how to chart. I right. haven't done this in years. <laughs> and these people are like critically ill. So I think we just have like self-care is so important. It's always been important, but even more so now, I think that people just have to let themselves be vulnerable and to open up and talk about, you know, what they're seeing and what they're doing and, and how that's affecting them. I think it's not a good idea to just kind of brush it off and ignore it. I think it's important to have someone to talk to 
whether it's family or whether it's a therapist, but I do think it's traumatic. It's traumatic even for healthcare professionals, especially. I mean, the suicide rate, the highest suicide rate in any, I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. The profession with the highest suicide rate, it's like dentists and doctors. Wow. There's a reason for that, right? Yeah. I mean. They're carrying the load. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, you have to kind of rest and know when you need to take not just a physical rest, but a mental rest and take care of yourself. And, and I think opening up to the people on the front lines with you. Right. You know, I wonder like what the ho- what hospitals are doing if there's support groups or, you know, I know this sounds you know minimal, but my private practice, this, the supervisor of the practice sends an e- a long email every morning, just words of encouragement, ways to practice self care, and so for me, like that's helpful to hear that check in and to feel motivated. Yeah. So I hope that hospitals are doing something like that. I think it's it's counterproductive too because it's like okay so in this type of situation being social helps but Mm -hmm. then you're supposed to be socially isolated Mm -hmm. so you get off a really tough shift you go home with something like uh like a deep briefing after each shift do you think something like that could be beneficial i think so i mean again i think simple validation you know and even I wouldn't say which of my jobs, but it hasn't <laughs> happened here yet or right. this place yet. And I've said how nice it would be in the morning to come in and have one of our physicians or somebody say, you know, things have been really tough lately. You guys are doing a great job and I'm here if you need us. And it sounds really simple, but I think just that simple, you know, validation of this, this is hard. You guys are doing important work. You're valued, you know. I'm sure people, all the food and coffee and things that are being delivered <laughs> in the community, the signs that are being put up. I mean, I'm sure all of that's helpful. But, mm-hmm. you know, I do think it's important to kind of access your feelings, you know, at the end of the day and kind of, you know, have someone to turn to to talk about what happened. And and if you're feeling scared or you're feeling stressed out or whatever it is, be able to have a way to let that out. I know, you know, like for family, running has been the outlet for them. Right. And being able to do things like that. So you have to kind of find what your outlet is. You know, is it exercise? Is it meditation, deep breathing? Uh, okay. You know, whatever that is. I'm just a dummy, and all I know when I think of self-care <laughs> is exercise and diet. <laughs> I didn't even put yeah, meditation in it because I'm dumb like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's even like setting boundaries, right? So okay. if you're, you know, working a 60-hour work week, knowing when to say, no, I, I'm not picking up this overtime shift, like being able to set boundaries right. for yourself because you can't, you can't pour from an empty cup. You're not going to be able to be on the Oof. front lines if you yourself are not well. I felt that way even prior to this because you know how crazy the ED gets. Mm -hmm. And then just when I picked up a fourth or a fifth shift, I just felt so mentally drained. Yeah. But now with, especially in these places that are getting hit a little bit worse, like I can't imagine what the mental health situation is in New York. Like where you're constantly turned on, your cortisol levels are running at all time high, all the time. It just seems like that's not sustainable. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're all human at the end of the day, and you have to know, you have to know how to take care of yourself. And it's more than just, you know, exercising. It could be prayer. It could be, you know, having a mantra every morning to start your day to kind of like set an intention, whatever it's going to be, knowing how to like take care of yourself. Because we look at like dimensions of wellness, there's like eight. So it's not just physical, it's spiritual, it's social. There's so many different aspects of your being that you have to take care of. You can kind of dip into each box and see what works for you. I guess everything's kind of goes back to the personalization, like mental health 
we are it just seems like a topic where we are individuals more so than other topics if that makes sense right it just seems everything should be tailored to you and you should everything's just like a journey to know yourself a little bit better right yeah well that's that's awesome i yeah i was very impressed with uh with digging facts out out of nowhere there Gina. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry i knew i threw a lot at you a lot no of that's stuff. awesome no i'm very i'm very impressed we're uh we're at the 40 minute mark now so is uh is there anything else you'd like ems or emergency room nurses to to know i think my biggest thing is you know there's such a stigma around mental health and i know that you know, a lot of ER staff, and you know, it can be an inconvenience or even an annoyance to have a psych patient come in. Um, uh, I, <laughs> to, yeah. be, to be honest, and I, and I understand that. Like I said, I know a lot of nurses, they don't get into the field to work with um, psych. Some of that, that is like this, the switching gears. Like I've been there before. Like you could have someone that needs blood in one room, but then you have a psychiatric patient that is experiencing a crisis and then the this drastic switching of gears like you're you, you got to be urgent in the sense that you're trying to keep someone alive right yeah. but then you're trying to manage a mental health health crisis where it's not like life or death but it right. is something that could spiral you know right so that's that's and i get that and, and no judgment and i yeah. just like i know that's the reality just like i could not I could not do compressions on someone who was in arrest. I couldn't, like, I couldn't do that. Like, we balance each other out, right? Because right. I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but no, I'm glad just... you're there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean, I would just say um, empathy and validation go a long way and just trying your best to not take things personally, to understand that there is a whole history to that person's life that got them to where they are. And I talk a lot about this in my groups, you know, we mentioned that you are not responsible for your wound, but you have to heal. Like that should, your healing is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's really empowering to tell patients, you know, you didn't choose to be abused as a child. You didn't choose to grow up in a low income home where, you know, you were afraid all the time, whatever the case may be, you know, you didn't choose to have a family history of drug abuse or depression you know, so none of that is your fault. But the empowering piece is it's now you can take control back and you can heal from that and move forward and take your life in a different direction. So for me, and especially because I work with kids a lot, I try to picture that adult client as one of my kids who's mm-hmm. helpless and didn't choose to be where they are, how they, how they are, especially in moments where they're combative or they're screaming, just try to separate their behavior from you know, who they are and just recognize that there's a whole history there that you don't know about. And if it's helpful, because I, I think that some people tend to have, it's easier to have empathy for a child maybe than, you know, an adult client who's maybe being combative, right? I mean, sometimes it's easier because, you know, it's a kid. Right. And sometimes I think, I guess from a standpoint, most of us think the kid doesn't have as much control. Like they haven't right. learned that. Exactly. And I think we have the same expectations with adults, but I don't think talking to you now it's got me thinking well may in a certain situation you don't have control either so what's right. what's the difference between a, a child you're unable to control and an adult you're unable to control because if you're experiencing a crisis kind of logic 
goes out the window sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say that key phrase, like what, what has happened to you? And just, you know, if you can look at it from that perspective and, and just know that your, your interactions with them are going to be short term and then they're going to move on and, you know, hopefully keep working yes. on things and get long-term help. But yeah, you're not going to change anything in a overnight ER visit, I guess, no. <laughs> but Absolutely you could be supportive. Yes. And we, uh, this is a shout out to the past, the last podcast with Cody. Cody was, uh, is a paramedic and he was saying some similar things. So it sounds like he's really matured a long way and he's a big advocate for mental health. Good. So there's people out there that are very interested in this. this is one of the reasons I wanted to follow this path of talking about mental health. Cause I, I think it makes people uncomfortable. There's more yes. that they can know about it. A lot of people don't even know about resources. Like mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure a fair amount of people don't even know that the crisis center still exists. Probably not. Right. So I felt like this is a good opportunity. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, um, thanks for joining us today, Gina. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if um, you want to check out the podcast, we're on YouTube and we're also on Podbean. Um, I've been using Facebook to advertise, but I've been actually looking into other outlets to see um, what would be another good avenue to advertise but the channel is the status dramaticus podcast channel on youtube um you can also search on pod bean um and if you follow me on facebook i'll always send the links you can email me like i said in the beginning uh if you have topics or anything else you want to discuss or something you might even be interested in at status dramaticus rnems at gmail.com so thanks again gina for being here i think thank i learned you. a lot oh, good. I'm i was glad. very impressed thank you <laughs> all right so that's it have a good night everybody